If you guys don't know that couple, that's Michael and Tracy Barb. Um, they've been a part of Genesis for a number of years. And uh, when I grow up, I want to be like Michael. That's all I got to say about that. Uh, what a great example for, for us in our marriage. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Song of Songs chapter 3. Song of Songs 3. Uh, you can get out your uh, whatever device you have your Bible on, or if you have the old-fashioned book type, you can use that too. We allow those here. Uh, if you don't have that, there should be one that looks like this around you. It's page 469 in this Bible, 469. I usually like to stand so I can get over and talk to these people and talk to these people, but since Cameron's moved everybody in, are you guys okay if like, I just sit on the stool and we just, just pretend that you're in my living room talking about marriage? Is that cool? All right. You guys okay with that? There's some people out there? Yeah. Okay. You're good? All right. Let's do that. So... Um, Page 469 in your Bible, Song of Songs, chapter 3. So yesterday I had the privilege to perform a wedding ceremony for um, a young man. I wanted to say kid. He's a young man who was a student in our student ministry at Genesis several years ago when I was a volunteer in the student ministry. Um, It's actually the second one of those I've done in the past year or so. And so I think that says more about my age than it does about these kids growing up. But I have to say that of all the things I get to do as a pastor, doing weddings is probably my favorite. Uh, you really get to know a person when you get to know their family, you know, and I don't think you really know somebody or can know them very well until you meet their family and get a, uh, see kind of the stock that they came from. You know what I'm talking about? Like you get to understand where they got their personality and like where the bride, I, I really understood where the bride got her quirkiness because I got to sit next to her father, uh, at dinner, uh, during the rehearsal on Friday night. And, um, and you get to see the people, the friends that influence them. And so I've developed, over the few years I've done weddings now, I've developed this theory that the bride and groom are really just the average of their wedding party. And so think about this with your wedding party, who was in your wedding party. Uh, it doesn't really work for my wife and me because we only had one person stand up with each of us. But if you, like, like if you take the most gregarious bridesmaid and the most reserved bridesmaid and you go right in the middle, it's probably the bride. You know, you know what I mean? If you take the most handsome groomsman and... Um, whatever is the opposite of that, the least handsome groomsman, the groom is probably right in the middle. And, and I, this hold up again yesterday. And so I see this with, not the handsome part, the groom was obviously the most handsome person at the wedding. I mean, but so you've got these people that have had influences on their life and they stand up with them at this wedding. And so the couple works really hard to make sure that the ceremony is just right. Well, the bride, okay, the bride works really hard to make sure the ceremonies, just the bride and her mom uh, work really hard to make sure the ceremony's just right. Uh, but what I always tell one, every couple that I'm a part of their wedding in one way or the other is that as special as this day is, it's only one day. Like this is just the beginning. And in the time leading up to marriage and even on that one day, um, most of your focus should be on spending the rest of your life together. In fact, I usually say it this way to couples. I say, uh, most couples spend way too much time planning their wedding and not nearly enough time planning their marriage. And here's what I mean by that. We all have this picture of what marriage should look like in our heads, right? We have this picture in our heads of what a marriage should look like, and it's, it's formed by our parents, by how we grew up, by the friends we knew growing up, growing up, the marriages we were close to, by our close family, and so we, we develop this picture. Um, it's influenced by the media we watch and what we listen to and what we read. And so I have this picture in my head of what marriage should, looks like, should look like before I get married. And my picture is different than your picture. Like this, the, the couple and the spouses, uh, each person in my picture has different roles that they play than your picture. 
the kids look different. The sex looks different. Uh, the way we handle money looks different. And so uh, my picture and your picture look differently. Yet so many couples are so caught up in planning for the big day that they fail to plan for the big idea. And so a couple that would spend, you know, drop five grand on a ring and $2,000 on a dress and 10 grand on a honeymoon will balk sometimes at spending like $300 for good Christ-centered premarital counseling that is going to help reconcile and bring together their two pictures of marriage. And that's so much more important, which made me wonder this week, like, why do we have wedding ceremonies at all? Have you ever thought about this? Like, what is it about the idea of marriage that causes us to put on our best clothes and invite all of our family and our closest friends to get together and throw a party to celebrate this union? Well, that's what we're going to look at today as we continue in week three of our Relationship Goals series. Uh, We're spending five weeks in the book Song of Songs. And today I want to take a look at the wedding ceremony from chapter three. And I'm going to talk about this important aspect of community uh, that we see in the wedding in Song of Songs. Now, there's not very much written in Song of Songs about the wedding. All right, there are only really six verses about the wedding. In fact, this is one way that we know Song of Songs was written by a man. There are six verses about the wedding and a whole chapter about the honeymoon, all right? And so, but we're going to talk about the six verses about the wedding. That's funny. That's really funny, guys. Come on. So we're going to talk about uh, the wedding, and then let's look at the the aspect of community that's there and the accountability that comes with that. Song of Songs, chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 6. They're on side screens, too, if you want to follow along there. It says, who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from the spices, all the spices of the merchant? Remember, we talked in week one about how good Solomon smells, right? Look at Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its post he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. So here comes Solomon on his wedding day wearing the crown that his mommy put on him, (laughs) big warrior King Solomon. Uh, I think it's safe to say that wedding traditions have changed a bit in 3,000 years. Uh, The groom yesterday did not have his mommy put a crown on his head. Uh, But he's surrounded by this entourage. He's got this posse of men around him, 60 of the noblest warriors of Israel. And they would have been matched up with 60 bridesmaids on her side. Now, I've been a part of some big weddings, but this is like something else, right? 60 on a side. I think I've had 12 on a side at one time. I thought that was huge, 60 on a side. This is a big wedding. But one thing that hasn't changed, what we see is this is still a community event. What we see in Song of Songs, this one was very large and well attended, but but whether large or small, the one thing that most weddings have in common is that there's a couple standing up in front of their community. And they're standing up in front of their family and their closest friends. Have you ever thought about this? Like nothing, nothing brings people together like weddings and funerals right? Uh, There are people that were at your wedding that, you think about the people that were at your wedding, they may not be in the same room together ever again until your funeral. I know that's a little sad to think about, but have you thought about that? The people that were together at your wedding, the next time they're together, you won't be able to enjoy it. 
Hopefully you're enjoying something else, but you won't be able to enjoy it. This is a big deal. People come together around weddings, but this ceremony consists of a couple standing in front of all these witnesses, their whole community, all these people they love, and making a promise to one another. And here's what you promise. You stand up there and you promise this. No matter what happens, I promise I'm going to love you. Like, no, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to respect you. I'm going to cherish you, whatever words you use. But no matter what, that's what you promise. In other words, what we're saying is this. I don't know how I'm going to feel in the future. I don't know what life circumstances are going to come at us. I don't know uh, if we'll experience more success or failure, uh, more sickness or health, more joy or sadness. But regardless of all of that, I'm promising you today that I'm going to love you no matter what. How can we do that? Like, how can we make that promise? And more importantly, how can we keep that promise? Any, anyone can fall in love. I think Andy Stanley says, uh, says it this way, falling in love requires a pulse, but staying in love requires a plan. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Because here's what's going to happen. In a few weeks, when all the cake is eaten and the dress is stored away and the rose petals are swept off the floor and the tan lines from the honeymoon are faded, what you're left with is two people trying to build a life together. And that's hard. And people fail at it all the time. I mean, most of us have seen up close a failed marriage, whether we've been a part of one or it's just been somebody really close to us. So I've called this message a picture of marriage because it kind of goes along with our relationship goals. You know, uh, if, if you weren't here week one, relationship goals is a hashtag that's often used on Instagram or Twitter. When you see a picture that you like that you want to emulate in your relationship, I want my relationship to be like that, but it's usually just a picture of what it looks like. And so every message in this series is called a picture of, this is a picture of marriage. But what I really wanted to call it is make marriage great again. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. We want to talk about how to make marriage great again. Here's what I mean by that. As Christians, whenever we see anyone do something, uh, so we know what marriage should look like, right? As Christians, we think we know. We've got this picture of what marriage should look like. And when we see somebody do something outside of what that picture looks like, we often are really well known to say that they are ruining the institution of marriage. Right? So like when the government passes a law and we don't agree with it, we don't think it's right, we'll say that they are ruining the institution of marriage. When media portrays a marriage outside the guidelines of what we think it should be, we say they are ruining the institution of marriage. I'm going to take this off because I don't think you guys can take me seriously with this hat on. But the truth is, the one thing that weakens the institution of marriage more than anything else is weak marriages. I want to say that one more time. What makes marriage weak is weak marriages. I mean, for those of us who are followers of Jesus in the room, we should always keep in mind that marriage is a proxy for, it's a representation of the love that Christ has for us. I mean, the Bible is filled with imagery of weddings with Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And so if you're a Christian, it should be of your highest priority to make sure that you have a great marriage. Not a good marriage, Not a we're getting along okay kind of marriage right now. A a great marriage, a marriage that represents the love that God has for his church, for his people. It's of your best interest to make sure that your marriage stays great. And Christians, we said this, we say this every time we do a marriage series, but if we could just get this one thing right, like if we could just get marriage right, think of the impact 
that we could have on the world. Like if our marriages in the church were stronger and more loving and lasted longer than other marriages, wouldn't that be a symbol to non-believers that there must be something to this Christianity thing? Because they love better, they love more, they love longer. People would look at us and say, I want a part of whatever it is that they have. I mean, people are leaving the church every year. They are leaving the church. And the big reason, if you ask a lot of them why they're leaving the church, they say that Christians are so hypocritical that they say one thing and do another. And I'm telling you, there is no place, I don't believe, in our culture where this is more true than in marriage. And and so I'm not gonna cast stones at anybody here. I mean, we all make mistakes, but I just want you to think about this, okay? From from somebody outside the church's point of view, what must it sound like to a non-Christian when a follower of Jesus who's, say, twice divorced says that culture is ruining the institution of marriage? I mean, if you're not a believer, what must that sound like? What, might it, what must it look like to people outside the church when there's a Christian couple, two people that claim to be Christians that are living together before they're married? You know, what must it look like to people outside the church when there's a businessman on a business trip who prays before his meal and then buys a pornographic film in the hotel room? Guys, I'm telling you, if we just got this one area of marriage right, it would send a signal to the watching world that following Jesus makes a difference. So how can we make marriage great again? And specifically, if you're married, how can you make your marriage great again? And if you're not married, you know, you're, there's a good statistical chance you're going to be married someday. So how can you start preparing now to make sure that your marriage is great when it happens? Uh, so we're going to look at this passage a little more closely. We're going to borrow some scripture from other places, maybe see three ways to improve your picture of marriage, or if you'd rather, three ways to make marriage great again. It's going to be huge, all right? Uh, these are in your notes if you want to follow along. Number one is this. Number one is, I'm just going to give you three words today. Number one is this. It's remember. Remember. Remember the vows that you made. I may not have been at your wedding I may have been. I may have been part of your wedding, some of you in this room. Uh, But I bet as part of your wedding that you made some vows to one another. In other words, that you made a promise to one another. You stood up in front of this community and you said something like, some version of, I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, my lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold for better or for worse, uh, for richer or for poorer, from sickness and in health, till death do us part. Till death do us part. I'm pretty sure as part of your ceremony, you said something like that. And your friends and your family, your community was there. And they heard you say that. You said to the person you're married and to all of your friends, hey, if this thing's going to end, one of us is going to have to die. That's what you said in front of all your community. In Solomon's case, it was 60, 60 friends, 60 mighty warriors These were guys that had the means and had the ability to hold him accountable if he went back on his promise. Do you have people like that in your life? Do you have people who aren't afraid to speak truth into you when they see you doing something that's ruining your marriage that they're gonna come at you and say, hey, Steve, you need to fix this. You need to change this. Remember, you promised you were gonna love her forever. One of the coolest things I ever get to see at weddings is when like a groom is surrounded by his groomsmen and they pray over him before the ceremony or a bride is surrounded by her bridesmaid. I love it when young men and women like have godly friends, the friends that share their same values and they are lifting them up before the Lord before their ceremony, the friends that uh, hold them accountable 
Friends that are about to hear them make this promise that they're going to be married no matter what until death do they part. And so let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been a bridesmaid or a groomsman in a wedding party? Raise your hand. Have you been a bridesmaid or a groomsman? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you have been a bridesmaid or a groomsman in a wedding where the wedding or the marriage has since failed? Yeah, that's hard, isn't it? Man, it's hard. Let me ask you this. Did you ever, did you ever try to hold the bride or groom accountable? Did you ever pull them aside and say, hey, Jim, look, you, you promised in front of me that you were going to love her no matter what. what. Dude, what happened? I would love to see that kind of accountability in a wedding party because that's what you're doing. I mean, look at Solomon. Solomon didn't select his best childhood friends to be part of his wedding. He, he didn't just pick the guys that made him laugh. He picked 60 mighty warriors, guys that could fight and take him out if he went back on his promise, men that could hold him accountable. Don't you want to be known as somebody who keeps their word? Don't, don't you want people to know you as somebody with integrity? I mean, you think about that. That's what integrity means. Integrity means you're the same person on the inside as you are on the outside. And one of the best ways that we display integrity is, well, people with integrity, they say what they mean and they mean what they say. And, and I think, you know, that, that divorce is one of the best examples we have of, and I'm, again, I'm not casting stones at any of you here. I know there are divorced people in the room, but divorce is an example of a lack of integrity. It's I'm not doing what, now there's all kinds of reasons people get divorced. All right, I get that. And I'm not saying that your, your husband or your wife doesn't have issues. I know I don't know what your life looks like. I know I don't know how he treats you. I don't know how she talks to you. I don't know how lazy he is. I don't see your life. And I'm not saying that you need to stay with somebody who's abusing you. That's, in fact, if that's you, if you're in that case, man, I would love to help you get help. But we're all sinners. We all have our issues, which means that we need to be that much more full of grace for our spouse. And we need to be that much more intentional about remembering what we promised, that we made this promise on our wedding day. And in fact, I would say we need to take one step further and not just think about what did I mean when I promised till death do us part, but what did she think I meant when I said I do? Or ladies, what did he, what did your husband, I bet if you ask your wife, guys, if you ask your wife, go home, you ask your wife on the way uh, to lunch or whatever, what did you think I meant when I said I do? I bet they have a whole different idea of what that meant than you do. And, and ladies, I think same thing for your husband. When you said I do, I bet they had, a, they had a whole different idea of what that meant. Ask them and see if you can live up to that expectation of what you promised. So number one, step one, making marriage great again. Remember what you promised. Number two is this. It's getting hot in here. Number two, submit. In order to love like the Bible commands us to love, we need to submit our will to the will of our spouse. Ephesians 5 gives probably the most complete and certainly the most controversial advice to husbands and wives, um, but it starts with a simple command. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so Ephesians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church. So he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church, and he says, basically, hey, if you have any reverence for Christ, all right, if you claim to follow Jesus, if you are submitted, if your life is submitted to his, then you should submit to one another 
Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The best marriages, guys, the best marriages happen where the two spouses are constantly trying to out-submit one another. Like, you go first. No, you go first. No, let's do what you want to do. Let's do what you want to do. Biblical love says that what you want is more important than what I want. The passage goes on. says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, here's where it gets controversial. This is where Christian marriage falls apart in our culture. So, the wife's just supposed to submit to the husband, huh? Just do whatever he says. Already saw in verse 21 that scripture tells both partners to submit to one another, but the author here gives another special instructions to the wives saying that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, what does that mean? That he's in charge? That that, the way he says goes? No. It means that the Bible gives special authority to the husband in the relationship and requires a higher level of leadership from the husband. Look here. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I'm always struck on the wedding day when the bride comes down the aisle and I have a unique view standing at the front of the church and, or the auditorium or wherever and looking back and seeing her come this way and I can glance over and I can see the groom's eyes and he just starts to tear up and he's looking at his wife who is beautiful and radiant and flawless because she spent so much time getting ready for this wedding. And the Bible says, guys, that's what you need to do to your wife. You need to present her as beautiful and radiant and holy and blameless. So guys, when you talk to your friends about your wife, what do they know about her? Do you present her as holy and blameless and without wrinkle or stain? Or do you focus on her flaws? Do you present her as radiant without stain or wrinkle? This is what part, of, part of what it means to be the head of your wife. I mean, think about this. What does the head do for the body? You know, it leads your body. Try walking somewhere without looking at it first. But don't try that, okay? But you know what I mean. If you try to walk somewhere without seeing where you're walking, there's, there's danger there. That's what the head does. The head senses danger for the body. I mean, with your head, you smell smoke and you hear a, a car coming. You, you see danger ahead. The husband should be the spiritual smoke alarm for the household, sensing where danger is coming and making sure that everybody gets to safety. It says husbands ought to love their wives as your own body. And some of you go, oh, good, I'm off the hook. I don't like my body. (laughs) You may not like the shape of your body, but your actions tell me how much you love your body. Because if your body is hungry, you feed it. And if your body is tired, you sleep. Even if it's during church sometimes. (laughs) If you have an itch, you scratch it. You are so tuned in to the needs of your body that you won't want, let one escape without addressing it. And guys, how, if we were that tuned in to the needs of our wives, guys, you need to lead well. 
You need to lead with strength. We see this represented by Solomon's carriage in verse 9 and 10. Song of Songs 3, 9 and 10. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. I always want to say Lebanon because I'm from Indiana, but it's Lebanon. Its post he made of silver. Its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple. Its interior inlaid with love. Dude is a manly man. He made his own car. Any of you in the room made your own car? Maybe one or two. Probably not very many. It's, it's strong. It's made of wood from Lebanon where the most majestic cedars grew. It's made of silver and gold. It was strong yet. Look, it was gentle. It says the interior was inlaid with love. Man, we should lead in that way. We've got to be strong on the outside but tender and gentle to our wives. The Bible continually tells us that the root of sin facing our love relationships is passivity in the leadership of men. I mean, think about Noah in a drunken stupor after the flood. Think about Abraham uh, lying about Sarah being his sister. Think about Adam in, in the Garden of Eden when Eve took a bite for the forbidden fruit and scripture says that Adam was with her at the time, that he was with her, just watching her stumble, not, not wanting to step in her way. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. You know, I'm not going to get in the way. Guys, there is a hole in leadership in many of our marriages. There is a hole that is just waiting for you to step in and be the leader that God has called you to be. Many, or maybe most, maybe most of our marriage problems today stem from a man failing to step into the leadership role that God has called us to. Now, I ain't saying your wife don't have problems, all right? Here's what I'm saying. Most of what we see in marriages isn't a problem. It's a symptom of one problem. In a lot of cases, many cases, the, the problem, the root of the problem is the fail, failure of the man to lead well. Uh, I, several years ago, there was a documentary on National Geographic about loggers and um, these, uh, these sawmills, these big lumber mills that they had back in the, back in the turn of the, uh, the 20th century and how they would float these logs down the river. So they'd, they'd you know, cut a forest and they'd put the logs in the river and the logs would float down the river. And as long as everything was moving smoothly, the sawmill would go great. And the, the guy was making money because the logs were coming in and they'd get sawn into boards and then they'd get shipped out and he's making money. But, but sometimes uh, a log would get kind of crossways or something and there'd be a, what they call a log jam. You've heard that word log jam. That's where it comes from. And so the logs couldn't move down the river and the sawmill stops and nobody's making money and everybody has to come look at it. Now, the natural inclination for most people is to just start taking logs and picking them up out of the river until the thing starts moving again. But they always had an engineer. There was an engineer, and this is what the documentary was about, this engineer that would come down and he would look at this log jam. He'd look at these miles of logs in the river and he would find the one log, he'd call it the key log. He would find the key log that was the one problem that if he removed that one log, the rest of the logs would start flowing again and everything would be working like it should. Well, the key log to our marriages, in a lot of cases, the key log that's causing the log jam in our marriages is the failure of men to lead well. And that causes all kinds of other symptoms and all kinds of other problems that don't look anything like a failure of leadership, but that's where they come from. Now, guys, you may think, well, I don't have to lead her. I don't have to love her like Christ loved the church because she doesn't submit to me. It doesn't matter. It's not what the verse says. Look at this. Let's look at this verse again. Ephesians 5, 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, I know you guys are about half asleep, all right? I know you're not very responsive today, but, but I need you to do this with me. Guys, I need you to read the first word of this verse right here. What does it say? Wives. 
That's not for us. This verse where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, that's not for us. I'm not a wife. You're not a wife. That's for our wives. That's their verse. They have to obey that and they have to live with it whether they do or not. That's not for us. So when we say, I don't have to leave, love my wife well, wife well because she doesn't submit to me, that's not for you. Ladies, you may think, I don't have to submit to my husband because he doesn't lead me very well. That's not what it says. It says, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. One thing I, I often recommend to couples who are having troubles in their marriage, and especially a lot of times it's a problem with submission, it's a problem with leadership. I'll, I'll say, hey, you should attend marriage counseling together. We have a counseling group that we recommend, and they're great. And, or take a marriage course or go to you know, a weekend uh, marriage retreat or whatever. And, and I have to admit, I mean, it's been fairly hypocritical of me to recommend that because my wife and I have never sought marriage counseling. We just never had a problem that we thought rose to that. And I know some people benefit from it anyway. But uh, until recently, until now, um, I want to tell you about something that we have just finished up. My wife and I just finished up along with some other staff here at the church, a seven-week marriage group that I want to recommend to you. It, whether your marriage is good or great or it needs help, I think you'll benefit. It's called the Marriage Course. And uh, we're offering it as a seven-week connection group at no cost to you, thanks to my friends Jim and Susan Goldman, who were here on the first service. The Goldmans have led over 40 couples over the past five years or so uh, through this course, and they have some great success stories. Now, one of the cool things about the marriage course is that even though it's like a connection group, guys, this is for you, okay? Because I know this is an issue. It's, you won't be sharing your marriage junk with everybody else. Like, the way it works is that there's a, a time of video teaching, a DVD, and then you and your spouse go off together and talk about your marriage stuff together. So you don't share it with anybody else in the group. It's uh, seven Thursday nights, June 23rd through August 7th. It's uh, 6 p.m., and it's at the Goldman's home in Westfield. And because it's in their home, we have to limit it to only 12 couples that can go through this. And it's first come, first serve. There's not childcare. And because it's limited, I want to ask you to check your calendars before you sign up and make sure that you can make all of the sessions. It's seven Thursday nights in a row. But take the time to invest a little bit in your marriage. We'll offer this again. If it goes well, I'm sure we'll offer it again uh, coming up soon. But, but the very best marriages come from a place where couples are constantly trying to outsubmit one another. So invest some time in your marriage. Finally, uh, the third way we can make marriage great again is to pray. To pray. Pray for your spouse. Ladies, if you have a problem with your husband, stop telling your friends about it. Take it to the Lord. <laughs> Thank you. Guys, if you and your wife are having issues, don't go out carousing with your buddies. Lift her up before God. Take it to God. Pray for her. And not like this. This is not how we pray for our spouse. God, fix her. <laughs> Earnestly seek the Lord. Invite him into your marriage. Ask him where you need to change so that your marriage may be great. Ask him to help you, ladies, ask him to help you see your husband as he sees him. Guys, ask him to help see your wife as he sees her. Now, here's what I find. It's hard to argue with somebody you've been praying for. Uh, it's hard to yell and scream at somebody you've been praying for. It, it's easier to see someone's perspective if you've been praying for them, if you've brought their name daily before God. Now, for those of you who aren't married now, start praying for your spouse. And, and I don't just mean that you would find one, although you can pray that, that's great. But pray for him or pray for her that, that he or she would be a person of godly character 
that, they, that God would be preparing their heart for you, that how cool will it be on your wedding day to, to say, I've been praying for you even before I knew who you were, I was praying for you. Pray for your spouse. If it's possible, pray with your spouse. Uh, pray over your children if you have them. Now, I have to admit that um, I can't find evidence in Song of Songs that Solomon prayed for his wife. But I know that scripture is filled with uh, instruction for us to pray for those people that are close to us, to pray for those we're in relationship with, to pray for our spouse. And if you're an astute listener and you've been here for every week of the series, you'll note this is week three. And all three weeks, pray has been one of our main points. And let me tell you why. I think it's important to remember um, that marriage is a pre-fall institution. Here's what I mean by that. Um, marriage was created, we see the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, before Adam and Eve fell into sinfulness. Marriage was not created for sinners. And all of us who are in marriages, and all of us who will someday be in marriages, are sinners. And so, um, Tommy Nelson, who did a great series many years ago on Song of Songs, says that uh, unrighteous people will wreck the institution of marriage. That's why it's so important to include prayer as part of our regular routine for marriage maintenance. To be praying for one another daily, to, to lift your husband or your wife up. Because at its best, marriage is a union of two people under the watchful eye of a loving God. And if God is in the middle of your marriage, if he's in the midst of your relationships, of all your relationships, then he's the one that can change things in your marriage. He's the one who can look down and say, ah, I see what you're asking for, and I will bring that to you. I can deliver that to you. It's so important to include prayer as part of your regular marriage routine, because at its best, marriage is a representation of the love that God has for us. It's a love that sent Christ to the cross. It's the love that was so submitted to our needs and our will that God's, God's love was so submitted to our needs that he said, you know what? I will give you my son to take your place, to take your sin on, to, to save us, to rescue us from certain death. When Jesus took on our sin and died with it, it was a representation of the love that God has for us. And that's the love. That's the kind of love we're supposed to represent in our marriage. And that's the kind of love that we celebrate as we take communion together today. And so I'm gonna tell you about the logistics and then I wanna just run you through what I wanna do here. So there are four tables with communion. There are two here in the front and two in the back. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to be a part of Genesis Church, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to take communion with us. Um, there are cups in the tray and you can take you'll pull them out and there's two the bread is in the bottom and the juice is in the top and I, I want to first um, tell you what uh, the apostle Paul wrote about communion in 1 Corinthians 11 he said for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what we're gonna do. But then he says this, 
So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And so I know that some of you in a room this size have some issues in your marriage. And I know it's probably normal for you to come to church feeling that tension but going ahead and taking communion anyway, just going through the motions. But scripture says that we, and that's completely normal for you. But scripture says we should examine ourselves. We need to see if there's anything that's, that's keeping us from that loving relationship with God. So here's what I'd like to do. If you're here and you're not married or your spouse isn't here, um, I want you to go ahead and take communion as normal. There's nothing that's missing from your experience. You are in communion with a loving God. Please do that. Pray whatever you need to pray about. Examine your heart, but you're welcome to go ahead and do that. If you're here with your spouse in the room and you're both believers and you're gonna take communion together in just a minute, here's what I wanna do. And this is gonna be awkward for some people because you've never done it before, but it was great, so great in the first service. I want you to take a moment and pray with your spouse out loud with your spouse. Take turns. You can go get communion, bring it back to your seat, and then the two of you together pray for one another. Just take a minute. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be long. And, and if you've got deep-seated problems in your marriage, this is not going to fix them. But it might be the start of resurrecting a marriage that God created and God designed to last until death do you. All right, I'm gonna step down off the stage. You guys can come to the tables now. Uh, anyone who's a follower of Jesus is welcome to take communion with us.